This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Cardiovascular Assessment by Brianne Johnson Healthcare workers in all healthcare settings should always adhere to the latest World Health Organization guidelines on hand hygiene and barrier precautions before and after contact with a patient, bodily fluids, or patient surroundings. For more information, please watch our video entitled Hand Hygiene. Hi, my name is Bree Johnson and I'm a nurse here at the Pediatric Medical Surgical Intensive Care Unit in Boston Children's Hospital. I'm here today to review how to perform a nursing assessment of your patient's cardiovascular system. As a nurse, it is critically important that you master the cardiovascular assessment. The information you gain from your exam will help you categorize the severity of your patient's illness. A complete and accurate assessment will also help you to recognize if a patient is in shock or has congenital or new onset heart disease. First, we'll talk about a general assessment or appearance. Next, we'll talk about how to accurately assess their vital signs related to their cardiovascular system, such as their heart rate and blood pressure. Next, we'll perform a physical assessment in full depth. General Assessment First, you want to take a look at the overall appearance of your patient. How does their color look? Are they pale, pink, mottled, blue? Do they look like they're awake, alert, calm, comfortable, or are they agitated or lethargic? Next, do they appear to be malnourished or well-nourished? Does the parent report that the child is not taking their normal amount of PO intake? Vital signs. Next, you'll want to gain a baseline set of vital signs. This should include, first and foremost, a heart rate on your patient. You can gain this by both listening to their heart and counting, feeling for a pulse and counting the heart rate. To accurately count a heart rate, you'll want to listen for a good 15 to 30 seconds and then multiply that by the increment in which you counted. In other words, if you counted for 30 seconds, multiply by 2 to get their heartbeats per minute. No matter how you obtain that number, you should be familiar with the normal ranges dependent on age and be able to identify if the patient has a normal, fast, or slow heart rate. We talk about a slow heart rate as being bradycardia, fast heart rate as tachycardia, and a normal heart rate as normal. Usually, your heart rate is the, one of the first indicators that your child is becoming ill. Next, we'll want to move on to blood pressure. This is going to give you information related to the cardiac output for your patient. It's comprised of three different numbers. The first number is known as the systolic blood pressure, over the diastolic blood pressure, and finally the mean arterial blood pressure, which is also referred to as the MAP. The systolic blood pressure measures the pressure during the pumping phase of the heart. Diastole, or the diastolic blood pressure, measures the pressure in the patient's vasculature during the refilling portion of the pumping of the heart. Finally, the mean arterial pressure, or the MAP, is an average using a special calculation of the pressure throughout the cycle of the pumping of the heart. Point of clarification. 
The mean arterial pressure can be calculated by taking the systolic blood pressure in millimeters of mercury, adding two times the diastolic blood pressure and dividing this number by three. For example, if your patient has a systolic blood pressure of 100 millimeters of mercury and a diastolic blood pressure of 70 millimeters of mercury, their mean arterial pressure would be 80 millimeters of mercury. We'll discuss this a little bit later in some more detail. To gain an accurate blood pressure, there are a few things that should be paid attention to. The first is the size and placement of the cuff. Here, we have our cuff on the patient's left upper extremity. Any extremity can be used to obtain an accurate blood pressure. However, we often say that the right upper extremity may give you the most accurate. In newborn infants, it is best to obtain a four-point blood pressure. In other words, you'll want to gain a blood pressure on each extremity, the upper on both sides and each side on the lower. The things you'll want to pay attention to are the size of the blood pressure cuff. Here you can see that this blood pressure cuff fits just on the upper portion of the arm. Next, you'll want to look for the place where it indicates the artery. You'll want this arrow to line up with where the patient's artery should be. You should be able to easily enclose the patient's arm in the cuff. If the cuff is too big, you may end up with a false blood pressure reading being falsely low. If the cuff is too small, you may end up with a falsely elevated blood pressure reading. Point of clarification. With an appropriately sized blood pressure cuff, the cuff bladder should cover 80% of the circumference and 80% of the length of the patient's upper extremity. If you have to manually perform your patient's blood pressure, you should be aware of what sounds you'll be listening for. As you inflate the cuff, you'll want to listen for what we call the Kortikoff sounds. Once you've inflated the cuff, you should hear nothing, and you should inflate the cuff until you hear nothing. Once you begin to slowly deflate the cuff, you'll listen for the first time that you hear a ticking sound. This will be your systolic blood pressure number, so make sure to make note of where you see that on the meter. When you can no longer hear any sound, that will give you your diastolic blood pressure number. Make sure you have an adequately functioning stethoscope, which you can listen with, and again, still an appropriately sized blood pressure cuff. It is important to, again, know your values for normal blood pressure ranges. According to the PALS, or Pediatric Advanced Life Support System, we have a few helpful calculations that can help determine if your patient is becoming hypotensive, in other words, has a low blood pressure. In neonates, ages zero to about 28 days, you'll want a systolic that's greater than 60. Anything lower than that would be deemed hypotensive. In an infant who's one to 12 months or a year old, you're gonna want a systolic blood pressure that's at least 70 millimeters of mercury. In any other child between the ages of about one and 10, you can calculate what we would consider the lowest threshold for a systolic blood pressure by taking the number 70 and adding it to the patient's age in years times two. In other words, if your patient was five years old, you would have the number 70, and then multiply five times two to give you 10, add that to 70, and you'd have a systolic of 80 as your lowest threshold.
for a child older than 10 years old, anything less than 90 millimeters of mercury for a systolic blood pressure would be considered hypotensive. Again, always take into account that every child will be different and it's important to discuss with your team as a whole if you get a number lower than any of these to determine whether this truly is hypotension in your patient. Hypotension is a very late sign in shock, and however, and it is important to note that. Needless to say, it is important then to also be able to use the other parts of your cardiovascular assessment to determine your patient's clinical condition. Physical assessment. Now we'll move on to a comprehensive physical exam or assessment of the cardiovascular system. We'll move on to a look, listen, and feel model. First, you'll just want to look for any signs or symptom of diminished cardiac output or poor cardiac function. You'll be able to tell this by color, perfusion, and general overall appearance of your patient. The color of your patient should be pink and well perfused. If the child looks incredibly pale, this could indicate a number of things from anemia to poor cardiac output or some clamping down or narrowing of your blood patient's blood vessels in response to shock. Next, you'll want to look to see if the patient has the presence of something called clubbing. This is often caused by a prolonged and long-term hypoxemia or low oxygen levels in the blood and is typically seen in children with congenital heart defects. Next, you'll want to look for edema or swelling. Edema can be either in a generalized capacity, meaning that the patient as a whole looks a little bit puffy and fluid overloaded, or perhaps it's more localized to a certain region, such as their lower extremities. Lower extremity edema is often associated with congestive heart failure. It's also important to note whether the edema is something we call pitting, in which if you pushed on the edema, you would see an indentation that may remain for some time. This can get graded on a scale of zero to plus four, and it is important to note just how severe that is. Next, you'll want to look for any visible pulsations. One of the most important ones we look for is in the neck. You'll look for jugular vein distension, which you'll see here. In some babies, this is normal, but in a patient who's laying at about a 30 to 45 degree angle, you should see no extra pulsations happening in their neck. If you see this, this could be indicative of some sort of a blockage obstruction or heart problem. Next, you want to look at their chest. It is normal and can be in small children to see their pericordium move up and down with their heartbeat. However, if you're seeing extreme changes or something abnormal, you'll want to notify the team. Next, we'll want to actually start to touch our patient. This would be the feel portion of your assessment. First, you'll want to assess the pulses. The first thing you'll want to do is to assess the central pulses. In infants, be sure to note that the best place to assess a central pulse is their brachial artery. That is in their upper, more medial part of their arm. You can also palpate for a femoral pulse, which is located in their groin. In older children, you will want to feel for a carotid pulse. That is in their neck. It is imperative here to note that the absence of central pulses indicates the need for immediate CPR and you should call for emergency response. Aside from assessing for the central pulses, you'll also want to feel the child's peripheral pulses. You can palpate these in their radial artery, which can be found in their wrists. You'll want to compare both sides. You can also feel their feet. 
you can feel the dorsalis pedis and also the posterior tibial pulses. It is important to know whether these pulses are strong, normal, weak, or threading. Again, they're graded on a zero to plus four basis. Zero would obviously be the absence of the pulse, and three to four we consider bounding. It's important to note because while maybe you might think that a bounding pulse seems like a good thing, this could actually be indicating sort of a hyperdynamic state in your patient, which may be indicative of something called warm shock. Next, you want to feel the overall temperature of your patient. Do they feel hot, cold, warm? Is their temperature different depending on what part of their body you touch? Warm and dry usually is normal. If they're cool and clammy, this may indicate that something's going on with their vasculature and warrants further investigation. Something else you'll want to be aware of is, does their core, such as their trunk and their abdomen, feel warm, but when you touch their hands or their feet, you notice that they're cool or even cold? This could indicate, again, the beginning of the development of shock. It's important to note the line of delineation where the patient no longer feels warm and transitions to feeling cold. You'll also want to feel the pulses and the coloring and the temperature of the fingertips and the toes. Next, you'll want to test the patient's capillary refill time. This can be judged by pressing either hands until it turns white or blanches, and then you'll want to watch for the spontaneous return of the color. Normal is typically less than two seconds for that color to return. If you start to get into three to four, we would describe that as delayed capillary refill time. Anything greater than five seconds for capillary refill is indicative of a very serious problem and most likely requires immediate intervention. Now it's time to listen to the heart. Again, you'll need to go back to your stethoscope to do so. You'll want to be able to be identify the basic heart sounds. In normal people and normal children, you'll hear an S1 and S2, or the typical lub-dub that we talk about in the heart. S1 indicates the closing of the AV valve, whereas S2 is the closing of the semilunar valves. Here, you'll want to take a listen to your patient's chest. Listening to the heart takes a lot of practice, and the most important thing for you to be able to do is identify abnormalities in which you can bring to the attention of the team for further investigation. As stated, the S1 and S2 are the two normal heart sounds, and we'll, we want to be able to be sure that we hear those noises. However, as you move forward, you might hear an S3 or an S4. S3 can be normal and is sometimes heard in small, small children. This is usually heard at the apex of the heart, and it can be also identified as a gallop, you may hear some people refer to it. This can be normal, but again, always, always bring this to the attention of a provider if it's a new finding. S4 is a concerning finding and is usually identified at the atrial contraction portion of the heart pumping cycle. It is a low frequency sound and can often indicate severe hypertension or a potential cardiomyopathy. Some other abnormal heart sounds you may want to be aware of is a pericardial friction rub. 
This may sound sort of like if you took a piece of hair and rubbed it between two fingers and listened to it. This is concerning as well, as it could indicate that there's a pericardial effusion or it could develop after a pericardiotomy. The final thing you'll want to be aware of is a murmur. This often indicates that there's some sort of an opening or connection between two of the chambers in the heart. That or it can indicate an abnormal valve function. Again, either way, a murmur should be brought to the attention of the care team in order to best diagnose and treat the problem. Some things you should know and when you should be worried and concerned for your patient. Tachycardia, or a high heart rate, is typically going to be one of the first indicators that your child is becoming more ill. Secondly, you'll want to watch for decreased perfusion. As we talked about, the signs of decreased perfusion are going to be poor color, pallor. You may notice some modeling where there's some pale white spots developing around the patient's body. You'll want to look for decreased capillary refill time. You'll also want to note, has your patient become more lethargic or sleepy? A child who is unresponsive to pain should be evaluated immediately and is most likely in an impending situation. In addition, you'll want to watch their urine output. When a child is in a situation where their cardiac output is compromised, your body will shut down the blood flow to the kidneys and you may see a complete or partial decrease in their urine output or production. This should immediately also be brought to the attention of the care team. Some of the late signs that your child is an impending cardiovascular collapse may be, again, the decreased pain response or total lack of response. They've become flaccid and their tone is low. And finally, they're experiencing hypotension or a low blood pressure or a low heart rate or bradycardia. These are typically impending signs of doom. Again, it is important to note the lack of a central pulse indicates immediate need for CPR and chest compressions and the emergency system should be activated. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.